Chapter 26 of Darkness and Daylight, or Lights and Shadows of New York Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Darkness and Daylight, or Lights and Shadows of New York Life. Chapter 26 by Thomas W. Knox. The Police Department of New York. The Detective Force and Its Work, Shadows and Shadowing, Sleuth Hounds of the Law. On Mulberry Street, running through to Mott Street, in a quarter of the city that is neither fashionable nor attractive, stands a plain, solid building of four stories and a basement. Its appearance is so ordinary that it would not be likely to attract special attention were it not for the blue coated policemen that are constantly ascending and descending the steps. This is the police headquarters, the most important building of its kind in America. Here are the offices of the police commissioners, superintendent, inspectors, detective bureau, health department, etc. In the basement is the police telegraph office, the right arm of the service, connected by telegraph with the fire department headquarters, Brooklyn police headquarters, all elevated railroads, all the leading hospitals, the prisons, the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, and many other institutions. Anything of importance that is taking place at the farthest police point of the city is instantly known at the central office at headquarters, and, if necessary, can be communicated through subordinate officers to every member of the force. The messages transmitted over the police telegraph wires during 1890 reached the enormous number of 346,000 671, of which 202,650 were general alarm messages. 31,009 were notices of dead animals, and nearly 15,464 were calls for ambulances. Notices of arrests, fires, lost children, riots, strikes, etc., and miscellaneous business connected with department made up the balance. From this unpretentious edifice, orders are sent out that govern the entire force of 3,500 men who constitute the police of the great metropolis. No city in the world is better protected against the operations of all classes of criminals. The expenses of the department are about $4,800,000 annually. The building is open at all hours of the day and night. Through its doors enter beggars and merchant princes, swindlers and philanthropists, and men of all nationalities, classes, and professions, some as criminals, others as victims seeking aid from or protection by this strong arm of the law. A complete record of all arrests and for what crimes, of the term of sentence and place of imprisonment of those who are convicted, in every item of criminal occurrence in police life, is promptly entered with great minuteness in a book called a blotter, one of which is kept at each station house, and these are consolidated daily in records kept at headquarters. Each of the morning and evening newspapers keeps a reporter constantly on duty here until the hour of going to press. He closely watches the telegraph and other returns from the various station houses, and promptly sends a transcript of important events to his newspaper office. Murders and other matter out of the common run of things put him on the alert at once, and if the affair is of such magnitude that he cannot attend to it alone, 
he telegraphs to his managing or night editor for aid. For the purposes of police government, the city is divided into three inspection districts, each district being under the charge of an inspector. These districts are subdivided into 36 precincts, which are presided over by captains, and these in turn are divided by the captains into patrol beats or posts for the patrolmen. The control of the police is vested in four commissioners, known as the Board of Police, who are appointed by the mayor for six years. One of them acts as president of the board. He has the special duty of examining all charges against policemen before they are tried, and all important letters coming from police authorities all over the world are referred to him for answer. Another commissioner is chairman of the board of trustees of the police pension fund, and a good part of his time is spent in investigating claims upon the fund, especially those of the widows and orphans of policemen who have died in the service. Another commissioner is treasurer of the police board, and also of the pension fund, and the fourth on the list has general oversight of the station houses, and is chairman of the committee on supplies, and has charge of all purchases pertaining to this department. Next to the commissioners, the highest officer of the force is the superintendent. His duties are arduous, and his position one of great responsibility. He issues orders received from the commissioners, takes command at riots or great fires, and performs duty generally devolving upon a superior commanding officer. Then come the inspectors, of whom there are four, one of whom is chief inspector in charge of the detective bureau, and in the absence of the superintendent, acts as chief of police. Each of the three remaining inspectors has charge of a district. They are responsible for the preservation of peace and the protection of life and property in their respective districts. Then come the captains, 36 in all, who have charge of the precincts and are expected to maintain order in them. Each captain posts his men and has general supervision over them, keeps an accurate record of daily events, and performs numerous other duties. Next come the sergeants, 158 in number, who are in authority at the station houses, command squads of men sent out under orders, keep a sharp eye on the habits and appearance of policemen under them, and report any unfaithfulness on their part. Then come the roundsmen, of whom there are 165, who are in fact patrolmen detailed to supervise the latter while on duty. They are expected to always appear neatly attired, and must set a good example of faithfulness and sobriety to the patrolmen under them. It is the duty of a roundsman to constantly patrol his precinct at frequent and unexpected times, in order to see that the men are faithfully discharging their duty. Then come the patrolmen, who correspond to the rank and file of the army, and number about 3,200 men. And last come the 80 doormen of the station houses, who are general superintendents of the premises, and wear a uniform that, combined with their muscle and authority, secures for them the immediate and profound respect of all belligerent lodgers and prisoners. Over 150,000 lodgings are annually furnished to applicants at the various station houses, including men and women, boys and girls of all classes and occupations. There are 18 surgeons in the police department. They are members of the police force, but are not required to be uniform. Their office tenure is in all respects the same as other members of the force, and they are subject to the same general rules. 
they are required to attend upon sick or wounded policemen, give medical advice to pensioners when called upon, attend wounded or sick prisoners at the station houses, etc. They are permitted to practice outside the department, provided such practice does not interfere with their police duties. In former years, almost every person injured in the streets was taken to a station house. Police surgeons were sent for, and the patient was treated there. But now cases of accident and sudden illness in the streets are generally picked up by ambulances and taken directly to hospitals. After a patrolman has served for twenty years, he can, if he desires, be retired upon a pension of $600 a year for the rest of his life. When he arrives at sixty years of age, he must be retired on the same pension. If killed in the line of his duty, a pension is paid to his family, and they are compensated if, under the same circumstances, he is permanently disabled. Officers are retired upon a pension based upon their rank. Twice a week the four commissioners meet to consider matters affecting the service, issue orders which are to be executed through the superintendent, and attend to other business that may come before them. Once a week one of them presides at the trial of officers against whom charges have been preferred. The charges and testimony are written out by the stenographers of the board, and if the case is an important one, the testimony must be examined by at least three of the commissioners before final action is taken. That this work is not light can be understood when it is known that every year there are upwards of 3,000 complaints against officers, most of them for neglect of duty and violation of the rules. Nearly all of the complaints are made by their superiors, and some upon affidavits by citizens. And in all cases, the trial is as thorough as possible. Even were the commissioners inclined to be careless in their trials, they would be prevented from being so by the fact that their action may be reviewed by the civil courts. The punishments may be dismissal, fine, reprimand, or suspension from duty, with loss of pay. The dismissals are mostly for intoxication. Fines, suspensions, and reprimands are imposed for infractions of duty of a minor degree, and it is the effort of the commissioners to make the punishment fit the crime. Fully one-fifth of the complaints are dismissed. Any punishment that is imposed is made known to all the officers in the precinct to which the offender belongs, and the example is believed to be very salutary. There was a dramatic scene at police headquarters a few months ago. No man who has been convicted of a crime can be admitted to the police force, and every applicant must make oath that he has never been so convicted. It was charged that a certain patrolman had served a term in prison for robbery. The charge was specific, and on trial before the commissioners, it was clearly proven and finally admitted by the defendant. Here was a man entrusted with the prevention and punishment of crime, who was himself a criminal, and as such had served a term in prison. When the facts were laid before them, the commissioners were highly indignant, and at the close of the trial, the man was summarily dismissed from the force. But his dismissal did not follow the ordinary form. The commissioners were all present, and so were the superintendent, the inspectors, and the captains. Then all the sergeants, roundsmen, and patrolmen connected with headquarters were drawn up in a line, and many other persons were present. The president of the board read the charge and sentence, on which he made severe comments. 
and then with a knife he cut button after button from the uniform of the culprit, until not one remained. As each button struck the floor, the sound that it made was audible to everybody, so complete was the silence of the assemblage. When the last button fell, the man was ordered from the presence of the commissioners, and handed over to be tried for perjury on account of the oath he had taken to secure his appointment on the force. In another case, an officer who proved to be an ex-convict, and who had secured his appointment by perjury, was sentenced to ten years' penal servitude. It is safe to say that such occurrences are rare. Every applicant for a place on the police must have the names of five citizens upon his petition, all of whom certify to his sobriety, industry, and good moral character. He must be truthful and respectful, of perfect physical health and development, and have no tendency to constitutional disease. He must be not less than five feet seven and a half inches in height, must weigh not less than 138 pounds, and measure at least 33 and a half inches around the chest without clothing. He must be able to read and write the English language, and have a knowledge of local and general law enough to comprehend the duties of a policeman. About 60% of the police are of American birth, and 33% Irish. All other nationalities contribute about 7%, the Germans being in the lead. Many of those born in the United States are of Irish parentage, so that the Hibernian element is pretty large. But whatever the nationality, the discipline of the force is such that a bad man cannot long remain, nor can he easily find a place in the service to begin with. There are two schools of instruction, or rather two departments of one school. The schoolroom is in the headquarters building, and very much resembles a study room of a large academy. The new appointees, or tenderfeet, as the old veterans call them, occupy rows of benches facing their teacher, who sits at a table on a raised platform and scolds, praises, and rules like a country schoolmaster. No whispering is allowed. Offenders, instead of being soundly birched, are fined. They are afterwards thoroughly drilled in soldier fashion, singly and in squads, companies, and platoons, and receive a course of training by a surgeon so that they may know what to do to aid the injured. There are more than 200 rules to govern their conduct as patrolmen, and covering all possible situations in which they may find themselves. One of the most important rules is that they must not allow their temper to control them instead of their judgment when dealing with individuals who may be spoiling for a fight. The duties of a policeman are of the most exacting kind, and upon their faithful performance depends the security, peace, and prosperity of the city. He is required to pay careful attention to his personal appearance, and in the discharge of his duty he is always expected to be brushed, blacked, clean-shirted, and trim. He is forbidden to discuss politics and religion with his comrades or anyone else, and even the use of slang is forbidden to him, although he generally has a pretty extensive acquaintance with it. Nor is he allowed to drink, borrow money from fellow officers, or accept rewards, free passes, or tickets, although the last rule is more honored in the breach than in the observance. Caring for lost children. Night and day, rain or shine, when his tour of duty begins, he must go on his post and be prepared to meet all kinds of danger. He may encounter stealthy sneak thieves, red-handed murderers, and lurking and desperate foes of all kinds, 
and he must be ever ready to subdue gangs of noisy and refractory brawlers in tough resorts. When patrolling his beat at night, he must see that no aperture through which a thief could enter is left open or insecure. He must have an eye to windows, doors, gratings, and coal chutes. On an average, about 2,600 buildings annually are carelessly left open at the close of business by clerks or owners, and on the list are prominent banks, churches, and hundreds of stores. While at his post, he may be called upon to answer all sorts of questions, give advice, make arrests, aid the sick and injured, quell drunken and riotous brawls, and he should be constantly on the alert to discover fires, burglars, and property in peril in any way. He must take lost children to the matron's room at police headquarters, often buying them dainties on the way to keep them in good humor. There is no part of the duties of a policeman which calls forth so much sympathy as does the discovery and care of a lost child, and yet he would rather tackle a man twice his size than carry a little, dirty, tearful, rebellious, or frightened youngster to headquarters. More than 3,000 lost children are annually found in the streets of New York. If the child's name can be ascertained, it is entered, along with other particulars, in a book kept for this purpose. The name and address cannot be ascertained. An accurate description of person and clothing is recorded, and the same is telegraphed to all stations. By this means, lost children are restored to their homes in a very short time, leaving but a small number unclaimed. Communications are constantly being received from all parts of the world, requesting information of friends and relatives who have not been seen or heard of for periods extending from one month to thirty years. The greatest attention is given to all these cases. Officers are sent to the localities where such missing persons have resided, and old residents are interviewed, thus often obtaining correct and accurate information. Oftentimes it transpires that the persons inquired for are dead, in which cases death certificates are procured and forwarded to the inquirer. Very mysterious circumstances often surround these cases. When an inquiry for a missing person is received, the records of the department relating to persons arrested or sent to hospitals, sick or injured, are carefully consulted, and if the desired information cannot be obtained from this source, an accurate description of the missing person is recorded in a book kept for this purpose, and the members of the department are notified of the same by telegraph. An officer is detailed for duty at the morgue, and it is his place to make a daily report to headquarters, giving an accurate description of all unclaimed dead bodies, which report is kept in a book. In all cases, the record of missing persons is consulted to ascertain if any resemblance exists between the description of such dead body and any missing person. About 200 dead bodies are annually received at the morgue, of which number only about one-third are identified and cared for by friends. The rest are buried in the potter's field at the city's expense. Many of these are undoubtedly homeless persons without family or friends. The fact that so large a number of persons are found dead in one year in New York and not identified by relations or friends is a striking illustration of the truth that it is comparatively easy to become utterly lost in a great city. A policeman may be called at any time to the courts to testify against criminals, or he may be ordered to don citizen's garb and play detective here or there, 
or be called away at any instant to help to form fire lines in his own or any other precinct. Parades, weddings, political gatherings, elections, and scores of other exigencies are liable to arise at any time, and these make still farther demands upon him. Even when a short period of needed rest comes, he must still be ever ready for a sudden call to duty again. They are instructed not to use unnecessary violence in the discharge of their duty. Notwithstanding this, they have frequently been charged with a free use of the club on occasions when it was not needed. With some officers, there is doubtless a temptation to wield the club when milder measures might answer just as well. Much depends upon the surroundings and the character of the offender. In the dangerous parts of the city, he is justified in employing severity under circumstances that would be reprehensible in other portions. As to clubbing, said an old officer, there is no doubt that some of the men lose their temper sooner than others do, and then use the club unjustifiably. The club is put into the hands of a policeman for use, so that he thinks logically he has a right to use it when necessary. Now it is absolutely necessary to use it sometimes, unless the officer is willing to sacrifice his life. In some parts of the city, especially in the Fourth Ward, we have perfect devils to deal with. Within the last week, no less than half a dozen of my men have come into the station with their clothes actually torn off them. Every citizen has a right of complaint when he thinks an officer has gone beyond his duty, and he can be sure that the case will receive a searching investigation at the hands of the commissioners. Patrolmen carry the long regulation club at night and the short billy in the daytime. They are allowed to carry either of these weapons in their hands if they choose to, instead of carrying them in the frog attached to their belts. Clubs are made of sound locust wood, which is not so apt to split as hickory and oak. The nightclub is twenty-two inches long and one and three-eighths inches thick. The billy is of various sizes. The discipline and training of the police are especially noticeable in times of disturbance, and the services they have rendered are worthy of all praise. Instances of cowardice are extremely rare. Cases can be multiplied in which policemen have shown extraordinary courage in the pursuit and capture of criminals, and generally they are ready to perform their duty, however dangerous, without ever thinking of consequences to themselves. In the great draft riots and in strikes during more recent years, they have held the mob in check and saved millions of property from destruction. During the strike of the employees of the 3rd Avenue Surface Railway Company, a mob assembled at the corner of 3rd Avenue and 59th Street, where there was a large quantity of building material. The police formed in a solid phalanx extending across the avenue, and when the order to advance was given, they moved with a solid front in perfect alignment. The mob greeted them with a shower of bricks, and several policemen fell stunned to the ground. But the lines closed... The men, armed with their heavy nightclubs, were ordered to charge, and they obeyed the order with the promptness of a military detachment. With their powerful weapons, which never misfire and require no reloading, they fell upon the mob, and in less time than it takes to tell the story, there were a dozen rioters stretched on the pavement, and the rest of the mob was in full flight in all directions where flight was possible. The police carried out the orders of their superiors, with the efficiency of soldiers of the regular army. The police have a great antipathy to labor strikes and the disorder that accompanies them, 
and when they come in contact with a striking mob they are not tender in their ways of handling it strikes mean long hours of duty and hard work for the police in the third avenue strike most of the men were on duty day and night for a week or more unable to remove their clothing and only getting what sleep they could manage to secure at half-hour intervals in the station houses the prevention of crime is the first great duty of the policeman to this end the patrolman is expected to know by sight pretty nearly every person residing in the district in his charge and also to know his name and occupation he keeps a watchful eye on strangers and if any suspicious movements come under his observation it is his duty to investigate them strangers with bundles late at night especially in suspicious localities or in the neighborhood of shops or stores are liable to be questioned by the patrolman and their parcels examined unless they can give a good account of themselves and show that their actions are honest and their possessions honestly obtained they are liable to be run in should a patrolman want assistance he raps with his club on the sidewalk and any other patrolman hearing the signal will come at once to his aid by a system of raps he can indicate to other officers the route he has taken if in pursuit of any person in the night time patrolmen on duty are forbidden to enter a saloon except to make an arrest or quell a disturbance they may sometimes be seen slyly taking a drink at a bar but they run the risk of being recorded with a resulting fine or dismissal one cold sleety and very disagreeable winter night a friend of mine saw a shivering policeman whom he knew standing near the door of a fashionable saloon on broadway inside the saloon all was brightness and warmth making the night without seem all the more dreary with a heartfelt compassion for the faithful guardian of the peace who was compelled by duty to face the sleety storm my friend invited him to take a tom and jerry a beverage which is popularly supposed to be particularly cheering on a bitterly cold night i'd like it sir was the reply but it's again the rules for me to go inside i'll send it out to you said the good samaritan thank you very much sir he softly said and if you don't mind i'll go round to the side entrance and take it there please send it out in a soup plate with a spoon in it a waiter soon emerged at the side entrance with a hot tom and jerry and a soup plate and the benumbed policeman set vigorously to work at once with the spoon he had finished about a quarter of the contents of the dish when the roundsman suddenly appeared what are you eating officer queried the roundsman in a tone of surprise a plate of soup sir was the meek reply let me see it the plate was handed over and the roundsman tasted the soup silently and with evident relish until not a drop remained then he returned the empty plate and said with stern emphasis as he started on his way officer don't you take any more soup of that sort or you'll get into trouble i won't sir said the policeman humbly if you'll excuse me this time i've never done so before evidently no complaint was made as the patrolman was never summoned arrests are to be made when required to prevent a disturbance of the peace or in case of a crime being committed or of persons acting in a suspicious manner and for all offences coming within the view and hearing of the officer intoxicated persons are not disturbed as long as they conduct themselves quietly they are ordered to move on and keep moving and as long as they do this and are not noisy they are safe from arrest 
although two hundred or more foundlings and upwards of one hundred dead infants are taken charge of by the police every year it is well known that these are but a few of the actual number annually abandoned by poverty-stricken and unnatural mothers the foundlings are of all ages from the little mite a few hours old to the baby of one or two years most of them are discovered after dark on the streets in dark alleys or hallways and not infrequently on somebody's doorstep they are generally found laid away in baskets or boxes partially filled with old clothes or cotton some are wrapped in nothing but newspapers while others are entirely naked occasionally one is found whose fine garments indicate that its parents do not belong to the poor classes when a policeman finds an abandoned infant he at once takes it to the station house of his precinct where an accurate description of the babe and its clothing is carefully recorded in a book cut for that purpose with the name of the officer finding the same where found under what circumstances and any other facts which may be of interest or which may lead to the discovery of the parents of the child the infant is then sent to the matron of the lost children's room at police headquarters for temporary care and by her is sent with a statement of all the facts in the case to the infant's hospital on randall's island or to some protectory many of these unfortunate little ones are taken into asylums and institutions founded for the special purpose of caring for them some are adopted into families and a few are sent into the country it is very difficult to discover the perpetrators of this crime and still more so to secure the arrest and conviction of the offenders there is usually an organized conspiracy in each case to keep secret every detail and circumstance that would lead to the discovery of the unfortunate mother the harbor police is a special branch of the service under the command of a captain with headquarters on a steamer named the patrol the force is provided with six rowboats three of which manned by one roundsman and two patrolmen each constantly patrol the harbor and others being held in reserve the police boat is called into requisition whenever fire breaks out on the wharves or amongst the shipping or in any of the streets lying adjacent to the waterfront the crew are expected to quell mutinies to arrest quarrelsome or insubordinate sailors prevent smuggling check depredations upon marine property and preserve general order in the harbor during the excursion season the patrol attends at the wharves for which the steamers and barges start the officers going on board to ascertain whether disreputable characters are likely to make the excursion disorderly often finding it necessary to make arrests there be good reason to believe that the excursionists will be disorderly the patrol meets them on their return to the city and attends them until they disperse at the dock the patrol is manned by an efficient crew and is the dread of wharf and harbor thieves the detective bureau occupies separate apartments at police headquarters the force numbers two regular sergeants forty detective sergeants and fourteen patrolmen detailed for detective duty the head and guiding spirit of this department is inspector thomas burns who has been constantly and prominently before the public in this capacity for many years he is a native of ireland but is of american training he entered the force in eighteen sixty three and steadily rose through its several grades to his present office under his efficient administration the detective bureau has attained to world-wide importance he knows the methods and characteristics of crooks and possesses a thorough knowledge of their haunts 
when in pursuit of criminals he exhibits unerring sagacity and unwearying persistence that sooner or later brings the fugitives to justice. No one man in this country or in Europe is a more successful chief of detectives. His acceptance of the trust marked the first successful attempt to give New York City a detective department worthy of the name. Bank robberies, forgeries, embezzlements, burglaries, pocket-picking, and all sorts and conditions of crime are referred to this bureau, and the inspector is in close relations with the police of all parts of the country and the world. The headquarters detectives know every crook in the city and are constantly advised of their movements. They know the style of work of every professional thief in the country, and when a robbery and the circumstances attending it are reported, they can generally name the operator to whom it should be credited. Whenever experts in crime are released from prison, their movements are watched. If they are from New York, they almost invariably return there and proceed to hatch new crimes. The detectives are usually able to head them off, and many of them have found the atmosphere of the metropolis so warm that they have sought other fields of enterprise. Before Inspector Burns took charge of the detective department, Wall Street and its vicinity had been infested by gangs of bank thieves, forgers, and pickpockets, who had for years carried on their nefarious operations and found it a fertile field. Bank messengers were knocked down and plundered. Tin boxes filled with securities were snatched from the hands of elderly gentlemen, and piles of greenbacks were grasped at the bank counters, where those who had just received the money were ascertaining if the count of the cashier was correct. The mysterious disappearance of fat pocketbooks and the theft of bonds and valuable papers from counting-room, banks, and vaults was a frequent occurrence, and complaints were numerous. Determined to rid the street of these criminals, whose operations were constantly growing bolder, Inspector Burns quietly hired an office at his own expense in Wall Street and installed therein nine of his best men. He established a dead line at Fulton Street, and each detective had positive instructions to arrest any professional thief found south of that line, who was obliged to give a good account of himself or be sent to Blackwell's Island as an habitual criminal. Suspicious persons were obliged to give a satisfactory reason for being in the vicinity. A professional thief who had legitimate business downtown at any time was obliged to obtain a pass from one of the detectives, who also granted it as soon as convinced that the thief was acting in good faith. But woe betide him if the pass was made to cover the least iniquity. So complete was the system of espionage established that small chance was left for even the most wily criminals to ply their vocation, and they soon deserted the locality. A special room in the stock exchange is now set apart for the detectives, ten or twelve of whom are constantly on duty there. The result is that of late years there has been very little heard of robbery in Wall Street, and the many millions of money in and around it are as safe as though constantly under lock and key. The members of the stock exchange were so pleased with the success of Inspector Burns in ridding Wall Street of thieves and thieving that they subscribed $500 for the presentation of a handsome gold watch to that energetic and capable officer. Alas for human depravity and human impudence, while the stockbrokers were assembled to make the presentation, and the president of the exchange was delivering a well-worded speech to the gallant inspector, in which the thanks of the brokers were duly set forth, 
an unregenerate thief stole the president's splendid new fur-lined overcoat and got away with it successfully and no man to this day knows just how the theft was committed nor who was the thief inspector burns is earnestly devoted to his work only recently he said my business is never spoken of at home men say they leave the shop when the door is closed and think no more about work till next morning that is not the truth the man whose heart and soul is in his work never lets it wholly escape i do not dream of my work but i go to bed and lie there for hours studying a case when i get a clue i go to sleep and follow it up the next day if it is one on which i have failed for the tenth time i review each mistake and out of the corrections evolve the eleventh during the day i am generally here and every night is filled with engagements sunday i am here at salvation work in other words i clean house six days of every week bring me personal letters from people in every walk of life some of them are curious all are interesting and each is a clue to a mystery here and there is a sheet of notepaper from which a crest has been scraped or cut and quite as often a letterhead carefully decapitated if anything happened to me and these letters should fall into strangers hands there might be trouble it is only fair to the people who trust me that i protect them and so every sunday morning i unlock this desk carefully look over the week's mail and destroy letters the publication of which would blight innocent lives break up families do violence to individual welfare and shock society as he spoke the inspector unlocked the little desk the table and pigeonholes of which were piled and packed with the reputations of men and women families and firms do you like your life was asked immensely there is a fascination about a mystery that human nature cannot resist my business is shrouded in mystery and the more difficult it is to unravel the harder i work there is no satisfaction no glory no growth in doing the thing that is easy enough for anybody to do do you see many tears oceans of them some break my heart some annoy me and some amuse me as a rule women's tears get the better of me i am willing to give them the advantage because they are women but all the crying is not done by the fair sex in recognition of his kindness to members of the italian colony in new york and for his efforts in promoting extradition between italy and this country inspector burns was recently knighted by king humbert of italy but the inspector is a modest and unassuming man and he welcomed this evidence of respect less as a compliment to him personally than an honor to the force of which he is the head and representative for myself he said i do not value pomp or circumstance or title preferring to live and die the very plain man i am but for the office which i represent and the police force of which i have given twenty-eight years of my life without incurring censure or inviting disgrace once i am very grateful indeed in the department at police headquarters is the rogues gallery where the portraits of several thousand professional criminals are preserved together with their records when a professional dies his portrait is retired from the rogues gallery and the same is the case when one reforms in the former instances the retirement is based upon absolute proof of demise in the latter it is done at the request of the reformed after a certain period of upright living which is vouched for by several reputable citizens but the photograph is not destroyed 
it is kept where it can be easily found in case the man or woman should again relapse into crime detectives were formerly called shadows by the term shadowing is meant that vigilant watch is kept upon the culprit by someone who follows him like his own shadow and to do this successfully indicates no small degree of skill on the part of the detective there is no manual to guide detectives in their work to be successful in their profession they must be good judges of human nature possess astuteness alertness sagacity persistence patience physical activity and great endurance the most skillful detectives are those who have been trained by long and varied experience and who although veterans still retain the ardor and enthusiasm of novices oftentimes from insignificant signs that occasionally surround the most mysterious crimes they are able to construct a complete and correct theory of the motive and operations of the criminal they acquire a wonderful memory and seldom fail to recognize a face they have once seen however altered or disguised it may be it becomes second nature them to unravel plots unmask falsehoods and extort the truth the skilled detective is skeptical in regard to the reformation of criminals and the reports of the office show that the number of reformations is not more than four in one hundred they are also dubious in believing that want drives great criminals into their careers it may make petty thieves but never great ones they attribute half the criminality in the land to laziness and the other half to immoral reading and the temptations and instruction of successful criminals in the lost property room in the cellar of the police headquarters building are thousands of articles found on the streets by policemen here is a miscellaneous collection of odds and ends including bundles and packages of all size and kinds men's and women's clothing silverware revolvers pistols knives umbrellas musical instruments baskets hat boxes trunks and so forth all property found by the police is kept for one year and if not claimed by the owners within that time it is sold at auction in the museum of crime on the first floor of the headquarters building may be found photographs of notorious shoplifters pickpockets burglars murderers and eminent crooks here are sledgehammers whose heads are filled with lead drags drills jimmies blowpipes jackscrews sandbags dark lanterns masts powder flasks etc an interesting exhibit is all the paraphernalia and implements used in the famous manhattan bank robbery when the adroit rascals made away with nearly three million dollars in bonds and securities here are samples of the mechanical skill of makers of burglars tools showing workmanship of the highest order here also is the celebrated bogus gold brick and the lock curiosities of a man whose ear was so delicately trained that he was enabled to open combination locks of safes through studying their emitted sounds there are no ends of dirks knives and pistols and a good assortment of black caps and ropes of murderers that make one shudder to look upon here may also be found all the paraphernalia used for smoking in opium joints during the past few years crime has perceptibly decreased among professional thieves but notwithstanding this there is no cessation of police warfare on the criminal classes in eighteen ninety the total number of arrests for all cases was eighty four thousand five hundred and fifty six of which number nearly twenty thousand were women the old thieves have been driven from pillar to post and have almost disappeared 
most of the crimes of today are committed by the rising generation of young criminals who are the most reckless of their class because the most inexperienced. End of chapter 26